turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Insightful. Informative. Irreverent. We're ready. The Wall Street Business Network presents Rob Black and Your Money, your source for breaking news, market updates, and successful investment strategies for the 21st century. Sounds like a great program. Getting you to retirement in today's market. So let's get on with the show. Taxes, family finances, insurance, the economy, technology, media, and entertainment. Rob is talking about it with you at 800 516 1220. So call in. We'll chat and uh, have some fun. Now, to start your day with the latest news and market commentary, here's Rob Black on the Wall Street Business Network. Welcome in, Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black, talking money, investing, and more. Anything that you want to talk about, we can talk about. I talk a lot about millennials, but to be honest with you, I think a lot of that advice can be extrapolated to Generation X and baby boomers as well. My goal is to get everyone to retirement. Baby boomers, you should be there. You should have 10 times your salary before you retire, as much as up to 20 times your salary. Now, younger people, you have time. You have a lot of time. So don't stress, but get started. Despite a spectacular advance in the stock market from 2009 through 2015, a lot of people don't trust Wall Street. From 92 to 2000, a lot of people don't trust Wall Street because they remember the 2000 to 2002 or they remember the 2008 <clears throat> and how fast and how furious a lot of paper money could be lost. You don't want to miss out on the market over time because if you take a look at a chart, and one of the charts that I used to have on my office was the Dow Jones Industrial Average since 1920. and you can see like World War One. You can see World War Two. You can see the year that uh, Kennedy got shot. The oil embargo. You can see high inflation. You can see low inflation. You can see deflation. You can see recessions. But the chart showed you the performance of the stock market from 1920 to current day. And you know what it looked like? It looked like a teeter totter. Um. One side down on the ground, the other side pointing up 45 degrees. It goes up over time, even with all those horrible things like Nagasaki and Hiroshima, like 9-11. And that's the thing you have to believe in. And there's a lot of 40-year periods in that chart. And all of them showed up. So in down years, you invest and things are on sale. In up years, you invest and you have a time frame that's appropriate. So just knowing that that chart exists and the way I explained it to you, it lived through Republican co Congresses, Democratic Congresses. It lived through Republican presidents and Democrat presidents. So, yeah, you could have a, a talk show and you can hate 
Democrats, or you could have a talk show and hate Republicans and like, buy gold. This economy is going to hell. <laughs> You're like, what? Um, sorry, we went through World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, Korea, the Iraq oil uh, oil wars, whatever you want to call them. And you're telling me this is now the time that the apocalypse has begun. Okay. And what is gold going to do you during an apocalypse? You know what gold's going to do you during an apocalypse? Not a darn thing. If things get so bad that it's like Mad Max out there, women, shotguns, and food are going to be the commodities that are traded. A little bit of a joke there, but you get the idea. Um... <laughs> it wasn't that much of a joke. So anyway, getting involved in the market and knowing that, you know, you can't shy away from it. You're young, you're adventurous, you've got big dreams, but you can't wimp out when it comes to investing. I've got a friend who I adore, and yet she's got a problem. She's got a problem spending. She likes dresses, she likes her car, she likes, you know, traveling. First things first. You have to save. You have to invest. Then you could like all of those things. And if you could pull that off on a monthly basis, I'm good with that. Ask a 65-year-old what they wish they had done when they were 25. And many will say that they should have invested more. A diversified stock portfolio will blossom, and it will be wonderful for you. The sooner you start saving, the less overall you'll have to save. And the more you can get dresses and cars and vacations and sexy things. Um, bonds are great for grandpa. They're a bummer for most young people. And I, I interest rates are still very, very low, and they will stay that way for years. And if they do, bonds, cash, and conservative investments continue to produce scant results. And I don't think you want scant results. I think you want market results. I don't think you want safety of bonds. Now, again, some people who are in retirement, they need that. But it's not going to take a lot to get me to you know, convince you if you're under the age of 40. Like, yeah, let's skip out on bonds. There's bond alternatives that you know I think still can offer a little bit of growth if you really, really want them. So these are things that I try to remind young people about. You know, bonds are a little bit of a bummer. It's not sexy, you know, um, to invest, but you have to. You've got a life to live, but you also have to invest. And, you know, it's not going to be like you're out on a date. You're looking at your loved ones in the eyes and you're like, I put 15% in my 401k this month. Me too. No, you're going to be like, I want to make love to you and I want to make babies with you and I want to live my whole life with you because I see like the Himalayas in your eyes. And it's like, Himalayas? What are you talking about? No, I want to go to the Himalayas is what I, I meant. I didn't see mountains in your eye. Okay, that's better. Okay, stop, stop, stop. Point being is that um, investing isn't sexy. There's a silent thief that steals from you. It's called inflation. It quietly eats away at your value. Uh, take a look at rents in the last 10 years. How much have they gone up? A lot. Take a look at you know prices of cars. People are now buying cars on seven-year loans instead of six-year loans instead of five-year loans. Uh, I think if you can't buy a car with three years of payments, you're spending too much money. But, you know, don't let me be, be the downer. So everything costs more on a regular basis. Food costs more. 
that should continue. So even if you save a dollar in cash, it loses 2% of its value every year because things go up in value. Things go up in costs. A couple of years ago, you'd be like, I'm going to buy 50 eggs for a dollar. Now you get 12 eggs for three and a half dollars. It's like, ooh, I got to live off fewer eggs, right? And I'm, I'm, some of this I'm making up as I, fly, as I go along, but work with me, okay? So you have to beat inflation. If inflation averages 2%, you have to have your money getting somewhere between 4 and 7. Maybe a little bit more. You need to get a raise on a regular basis. Wages don't rise as fast as some other costs. Like housing has gone up way too fast compared to wages. So hopefully, as companies grow and generate bigger profits, they often reward shareholders. So part of your like your strategy is when you invest in a company, they'll pay you either in the growth of the stock or they'll pay you in dividends. Record corporate earnings have translated into robust dividend growth. So part of your income shouldn't be just be your job, but some income-producing stocks. Um, but also you should try to you know maximize your job if you can. Uncle Sam has a soft spot for stocks. Washington will help you make money by taking less. If you have the wherewithal now or in the future to own investments outside of a 401k or an IRA, you'll find that federal tax laws provides a big tax advantage over stock over bonds. The maximum federal tax rate on those payments is 0 to 15% for most people and 23.8% for the highest earners on dividends. By contrast, the top tax rate for any interest income, including from bonds or bank savings, is 43.4%. So you want to figure out the best ways to invest, the best ways to save. I can't reiterate that enough. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Find me online at robblack.com. I'm Rob Black, talking money, investing, and more. Thanks for listening to the show. I do appreciate it. Talking a lot of things that just try to get you on the money track correctly. That's my goal. You know, you got a lot of living to do, but you have a lot of saving to do. You don't want to be too conservative when you're younger. You have to know that inflation is the boogeyman. You have to look for your wealth to increase through both your salary as well as through your investments. You don't use your investments to go out and party. You use your investments to live from age 60 to 100, which could be a party. You have to know that Uncle Sam and the tax man is pretty generous when it comes to, pretty kind when it comes to taxing your investments. So keep that in mind. There's a couple words out there that are important. Basic diversification. 
An investor survey done by Retirement Studies Groups found that 37% of 20-somethings said they had no level of understanding of asset allocation. 37. It's pretty simple because you can't know which investments will do best. You spread it out over multiple investments. Small cap stocks, mid cap stocks, large cap stocks. There's indexes. Now, indexes are pretty stupid. An index might be 100 stocks, right? And it may just go for the 100 largest, the 100 fastest growing, the 100 biotech. And no one has to make any decisions. It's all mathematical. And they don't cost much. If you work with a human lawyer, he's going to charge you more than an online lawyer. Because... I don't know. <laughs> I'm just making this stuff up on the fly, and I just hit a wall. But you, diversification is cheap. It should be done cheap. Small cap, mid cap, large cap indexes. You can do what are called exchange-traded funds or index funds, whichever you prefer. They're very low cost. Low cost is important because annuities will charge you 9%. So you have $100, you only get to invest $91. And then because they're protecting your, your investment, they charge you 2 to 3% per year. In management fees. I wouldn't put my enemy in annuities as far as a whole chunk of money. And yet you'll hear radio shows where they're like, put 100% of your money into this annuity. Why? Because they're making egregious amounts of money. Egregious. So you want to own some international stocks? Index is fine too. Um, Or an ETF, fine for that as well. And you want to own some income. There's a good income fund called Dividend Achievers. If you just Google Dividend Achievers, you will be on your way to understanding what I'm talking about. Diversification. Basic diversification. Because if you put on a line, on a, you know, a horse race, horse one through ten, and they're coming down the stretch. They all get around the track, right? They should get a participation pin for just making it around the track. You don't have to come in first every single race. Now, same thing happens with small cap stocks, mid cap stocks, large cap stocks, international stocks, and income stocks. Commodities, they all have their years. Every dog has its day when it comes to investing. They all get around the track. They all deserve a participation pen. Now, if your track is 40 years long, you've got a long time. So diversification really works for you. The S&P 500 had a, just a smoke in 1998, 99, 2000. They actually had a great 96 to 2000. 94 to 2000, if you want to get really factual. But... The S&P 500, some years, is going to beat the NASDAQ. Some years, the NASDAQ is going to beat the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Some years, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is going to... Well, it's probably not going to beat either one of them, but you get the idea. Some years, the small cap is the winner. Like when the world goes to heck in a handbasket, small cap stocks are stocks in the United States. woo They don't go to Europe. Uh-huh. Large cap companies like Apple, <clears throat> they do do business in Europe. Now, they can buck the trend because of great product. But some companies like Coca-Cola, they can't buck the trend. When there's a slowdown in Europe, there's a real slowdown in Europe, and it hurts their business. So basic diversification, not a dirty word. And again, small cap stocks, 
will get to the finish line, small caps, mid caps, growth stocks, value stocks, they all have their days. That's why you want to own a little bit of them all. Stocks give you a direct stake in the economy, and it gives you a piece of pie. When you own shares of a company, you technically own a piece of that company. So you own 100 shares of Apple. You can't go into Apple stores and fire people, but technically you own a smidgen of the company. And technically, they legally have to give you either growth at the stock price, as the value of the company goes up, your value goes up, or they give you dividends by income, or sometimes they do things like stock buybacks so that it makes your shares more valuable because there's fewer of them out there. So you own a smidgen, just got to be a, a little bit bigger of a smidgen. So everyone deserves to own stocks, and everyone deserves to own a piece of the pie. Otherwise, you're not going to get to retirement. One of my favorite sayings and I recently interviewed for a gig that it was just honestly an honor to be there. And I'll eventually work with that group. And I was thrilled because they're one of the best in the nation. And we just have to figure out the details. We have to figure out the timing. We have to figure out things like that, what role and what capacity they want me in. And in the interview, one of the things I said is, you know, I'm I'm just happy that I got the interview. Because sometimes you take a piece, you know, you take a chance. Sometimes you take a pie in the face and sometimes you're hip deep in pie. It's one of my favorite sayings. I love pie. Being hip deep in pie ain't so much of a problem. Being hit in the face with a pie, if it's like an apple cinnamon, yum. I don't mind that failure. Investing brings rewards. You know, when you own Starbucks, do you think they're going to go out of business anytime soon? Have you been in a Starbucks? Now, there could honestly come something that just surprises the heck out of me. It could happen. Where, like, millennials are like, I'm not going in a Starbucks ever again. And I know some millennials that are like that. I like Pete's. I like this. See, Starbucks is in the position that they can buy all these companies. Phil's Coffee, they can buy them. They can gobble them up in one minute if they wanted to. Phil's the mojito or whatever mint coffee thing that they make. Yummy, refreshing. But as an investment, Starbucks is going to kick the butt. So when you own these companies, you get a reward. Now, when you like fund Kickstarter, you get like, hey, I'm going to fund the new Ally McBeal TV movie. You get like, oh, a DVD. That's your reward for giving them money. But when you give money to the stock market, you get to own great companies. Don't let that miss the importance on you. Don't let that, don't. Don't miss that. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Thanks for listening to the show. Talk to you soon.
Joining me now from Newsweek, Leah Goodman. How are you, Leah? Good. How are you this morning? Doing well. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, wow. That's not a uh, loaded question. Oh, I just, uh, every time I have someone new on who's a journalist, I, I like get a little background. Yeah, well, I have been writing for Newsweek for a couple of years, and I come by way of a financial background and started at the Wall Street Journal. And originally, I think my family always laughed because I was such an artistic child. You know, they thought I would be a painter or um, maybe a fiction writer, but nobody ever really thought I would write about finance, but I just sort of caught the bug, and I really enjoy it. Good. Um, I would say that... I fell into financial media kind of the same way. Uh, but with that said, I really enjoyed it. I like you know, bringing the stories to the people that help them get to retirement. Uh, you recently wrote for Newsweek an article entitled Millennial College Graduates, Young, Educated, and Jobless. Are they still jobless? Because some of the data seems to be the job market seems to be improving. Yeah, so we're getting close to a you know, seven-year low in unemployment, which is wonderful. And in May, the unemployment rate was 5.4%. However, millennials are just getting completely left out of this recovery. And, you know, this time last year, 40% of the unemployed were millennials, and that really hasn't changed, and it could get worse as more of them graduate. I think about 2.8 million are graduating with bachelor's, master's, and PhDs just this, this um, season. And so the question is, is how are these people going to get jobs, pay off their student loans, and, you know, get started in the world? Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, obviously, millennials are 18 to 35. There's a lot of different angles that we could take on them. We could talk about um, the college <laughs> debt that they have. We could talk about how they're Internet savvy and all they've known is the Internet their whole life. Um, we could talk about how they've only seen really a rough economy since college. Um, yeah. What's some of the things that you want to add about the insights into millennials? Well, I'll say this. As somebody who graduated at a really good time, I graduated in 1988 from college, and I emerged, you know, shortly before the dot-com boom busted, but we were still in the glory days. You know, everybody thought it was never going to end. And I emerged into, you know, the job market well-positioned. But even then all students worried about was, you know, can I compete? Did I get enough internships? Did I, you know, did I do enough to get the job I want? And I really feel for millennials and, you know, all age of millennials. I, I actually have an intern who's um, just gone to Washington and is uh, looking for jobs right now and is quite stressed out about the fact that even entry-level jobs are now being uh, – competed for by people with lots of experience because there's so few jobs out there. And so if you're just coming out of university and you don't have you know, several years of experience, even an entry-level job you might not get, which is unbelievable. And how are they supposed to get experience if they can't get any experience? It's something, and then how do you get a job? It's something that I caution about because I do financial media. I tell parents, like, don't let your kids become journalists because there's so few journalist jobs out there. Don't let your kids become poets in college because there's so few poets out there. Do math and science. That's where all the jobs seem to be. And I'm not taking a shot at you. Yeah. No, you're not. You're not. Um, well, I will say this. I think a lot of students who are encouraged to just pick any major, no matter what the loan debt, are not being encouraged 
in the right direction because you're right. You do have to look at the sector that you want to go into, and then you do have to make sure that whatever your game is on entry to that sector, that you are well positioned. And yeah, I was acutely aware from the first day of journalism school that I had to be really working hard <laughs> to get, you know, to get the best of everything I possibly could. I didn't do unpaid internships, um, and even then, you were not usually offered a paid internship. So you had to work all year while you were also going to school to, you know, put as many rods in the fire as possible so that when you got to summer, you had a choice of paid internships. And I just remember thinking when I was in university that I spent more time worrying about being positioned for the job market on graduation than anything else, anything else. I would get my studies out of the way, and that was my main focus. And uh, it's funny because now when I see a lot of different students talking about, you know, I got my master's in music, and now I'm in a church, and I get paid almost nothing, and I work part-time, you know, there is a part of you, of course, that says you really should have been a little more careful. <laughs> but the, I, I feel for people who really want to be in the arts and they want to be, you know, writers. Uh, I just think the thing is, is you really have to look at the market you're entering into and whether or not it really can support a normal lifestyle. Speaking with Leah McGrath Goodman about her recent article tied towards millennials, the young, educated, jobless. Um, inside the article, the do you offer any hope for the direction the millennials are going? Because we need them to have jobs to support Social Security and to help us get school improvements and tax increases and <laughs> things along those lines. A lot of people don't look at it that way. They just go, ah, they're young and beautiful. But we need them to have jobs. Yeah, well, I would say if, if you have people listening who have heretofore been thinking things like they're not trying hard enough or they're a little lazy or they're a little entitled – uh, you know, or they just want everything sort of handed to them. That is not really the case. Uh, most millennials who can't get jobs right now who are trying are just in a very bad – they're facing some of the worst challenges that any any age group has ever faced in the job market in the history of the United States. You know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics clearly shows that millennials are facing the longest sustained downturn in jobs for their age group since it began collecting statistics. So if you know millennial and they're looking for a job, my suggestion is help them, you know, and introduce them to people. And if you are a millennial, tell everyone you know what kind of job you want, what you're willing to do, and make it clear you're available and just really willing to work. I think right now there's sort of a disconnect on both sides. You know, my, um, my father was telling me the other day, you know, about a millennial he knows in his neighborhood and he was saying that she was lazy and not trying and wanted her mother to pay her cell phone bill. And I was thinking, well, what if she is trying? <laughs> you know, um, not having that sympathy from people to help a millennial get a job will make it even harder for them. It's interesting that you say that because my initial reaction was the paying the cell phone bill takes me back to the first episode of Girls on HBO. And I think a lot of us Americans who are successful and doing well we get our images of millennials from shows like HBO Millennials, um, HBO's uh, Girls, and it's just not accurate because people in Tennessee are totally different than people in New York or totally different than California. Um, <laughs> anyway, I don't know if that's an aside on the dad saying, you know, about the cell phone bill, but I get it. Um, and I, I agree with you on the networking and tutoring of, of younger people. Um, in radio, there's no money in radio. 
So I, I constantly tell the board ops, get another job, get out. Join the military. Anything has to be better than staying in radio. I, I personally feel like whether you want a job in radio, you want a job in journalism, you want to be an investment banker, yeah. that you need mentors. So if, you know, if, if any of your listeners know any millennials who are struggling, it's really important to have help. Everybody needs it, and I personally, this is just me, I'm 38 years old, but I feel fairly protective of the younger generation struggling and trying to come up because I'm acutely aware of the fact that, you know, some of us older generations have been really bad at creating a situation that has been, you know, beneficial for those trying to come up. You know, right now you're looking at a landscape where they have the pretty much the highest burden ever of student loan debt average per student. You have a situation where they're being asked to also subsidize the health care of older um, generations through, you know, through Obamacare and some of these other measures that are, you know, more or less profiting off the health of youth <laughs> to support, you know, those who are older. And yet a lot of these older generations are directly responsible and have played key roles in the financial crisis that has made it so horrible for some university graduates as they try to get jobs. So I really feel we have a duty to do what we can to make things better for the millennials we know, because I would have never wanted to graduate into this situation. Speaking with Leah McGrath Goodman, author, published uh, author, as well as um, writer-journalist uh, with Newsweek. Anything else that you want to add from your recent story on millennials? Anything that adds a little color as we wrap up? Well, I think probably uh, one of the things that interviewing some of the university folk who uh, either have been studying this issue, you know, either wealth gap issues or job issues for young people, a lot of them have pointed out, including some of the more prestigious universities, that um, even amongst the most prestigious universities, there's an argument about whether or not universities are really supposed to prepare students for the job market or focus on enlightenment, you know, um, the sort of what we're we understand as a liberal arts education that's supposed to make you a critical thinker when you go out into the world. Um, I would argue that's fairly antiquated. You know, most students wouldn't want to pay, you know, roughly $100,000 to become better critical thinkers. I would think that they could probably spend less money and still achieve those ends. So it sounds like more universities need to get on board with becoming directly responsible for integrating um, work with studies so that students can graduate with experience and be ready to go. Thanks for joining me today. It's Leah McGrath Goodman with Newsweek, an article on millennials. Again, very big issue, um, how they handle money, how they get jobs, their college debt. Uh, they're the future spenders. They're the future baby makers. They're a big part of our economy.
I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial. Money, investing, and more. Anything you want to talk about, we can talk about. I'm kind of doing a rambling right now. And I like to ramble. Again, just going over some real basic concepts I think helps people from time to time. You got to live, but you also have to save. I'm not, you know, advocating that people give up everything. Um, but I see some of my biggest regrets. I had a girlfriend in my 20s that I was like, I'm an impressor. Got front row seats to see Peter Gabriel, flew her to Miami. What was I doing? What was I thinking? That's a lot of money. It's good living, but it's a lot of money. I was like, the gentleman, I'll pay, kind of thing. It was fun. And it's a memory for sure. But, you know, I dated a girl named Judy. And when we broke up, I had just started my company and it had been a, a, a brutal time right after college. Just, you know, first year you lose a lot of money, second year you break even, third year you make some money. And you don't know if you're going to make it to the third year. And, you know, I was trying to, you know, work 60, 70, 80 hours a week and have a love life and relationship. And it just wasn't, it wasn't in the world that I wanted it. You know, I wanted a movie, I wanted dinner, I wanted, you know, getaway, sexy getaways. And when we broke up, she's just like, you're doing too much. And all I want to do is sit on the couch and eat corn chips. And like, I didn't get that. And that's, I've been to Mexico with women. I've been to Hawaii. I've been like, I lived well. And you don't let love lead to financial loss. In my opinion, yet we do. You got to remember, like you said, you know, changing topics here. Inflation is the reason you have to save money because everything's more expensive. It used to be 250 bucks to fly round trip on Virgin America uh, from here to New York City and back. Now it's like 600 bucks. So if you want to fly, like if you want to travel, it's going to be more pricey. A great five-star hotel used to be 400 bucks a night. Now it's 600, 700 dollars a night. Um, you want to set up in your career, hopefully that you're making more money every year. And that's one of the financial benefits of like if you have a mortgage and it, you're struggling to pay it. And you're like, oh, please don't let anything go out. You know, don't, don't, I, I, I have no money to fix things right now. But if you keep getting raises, your mortgage stays the same, your mortgage stays the same, and your mortgage stays the same, and you get raises, you get raises, you get raises, even if it's 3% a year, suddenly things get a little bit easier. So know that. You want to invest in stocks because they'll grow over time, and you want to invest in your career so that hopefully your wages grow over time. Um, they go hand in hand, in my opinion. So I love looking at my 401k every year. It's like, woo, I got a little bit more money than I did last year. You don't ever want to be a stock picking God. You could pick your nose. You can pick your friend's nose. I think picking stocks is is much more difficult than those two things. Have you ever picked another human's nose? And I only bring it up because it's a pretty disgusting thought, but like, uh, when my dad was dying of cancer, I had to work with a catheter in him and his, you know, urine. And, like, you get to the point where you, I just now look at the body as a piece of meat. I could pick your nose. If you say, I've got a big booger, can you grab it for me? I'm like, not a problem. Because once you work with someone who's dying and you help lift them off their bed and, you know, you help their body get through the ravages of uh, radiation and chemotherapy, 
He just learned that we're just meat. Anyway, everyone should be investing in stocks. And if you don't, you only have you to blame. If you have cable TV, then you're rich, in my opinion, because cable TV is ridiculously priced. And again, if I were to try to take someone's cable TV, they might shoot me. That's how much they, they believe in it. But if you can invest that 150 bucks a month into stocks, you can own like parts of the, some of the greatest companies in the world. Wells Fargo, you can, um, you know, Apple, like you're, you earn that piece of pie long before you have cable television. So if you're, if you can afford a $5 cup of coffee, you darn well better be investing in coffee. Um, Investing abroad is a real smart thing to do. I've been to foreign countries, and the first time I landed in uh, Germany, um, I got on a train, and the first train stop, I had to, like, poop. And I get out of the, the train, and, you know, I'm, like, looking for the men's room, and I find a bathroom, and there's a, a hole and a rope. I'm like, let me figure out the mechanics of this, because I'm not a guy who could squat and poop. I've never tried, Did it? don't know, like, the... I don't know what I would do in the woods. But in this case, you had to grab the rope, pull down your pants somehow, and go into a hole. The whole world has a lot of plumbing that it needs. The whole world has a lot of roads that need to be built. The whole world has a lot of buildings to be erected. And because of that, there's investments. Because when you're doing that stuff, you have workers, and there's a cost of money, there's a, a borrowing, there's a, you know, in theory, they're going to build a building to put workers in it. Workers work. Company's happy. They say, hey, let's get a, go buy another building. So you have to invest in a worldwide exchange-traded fund. I think not so. The United States is kind of mature. So if I were to tell you, like, um, and this is a bad example, but... Uh, if, Real bad example, but it's the best I got. Hillary Clinton's like 65, right? She doesn't have that much life left in her. Kate Upton has a lot of life left in her. She's like 25. So Hillary Clinton is the U.S. economy, whereas Kate Upton is the emerging markets. It's the Africas. It's the Middle East. It's parts of Asia. It's some of Latin America. I don't talk about Latin America enough. And I'm, I don't know why. Our presidents don't talk about America enough. I'm not really... Why is Latin America and South America so far off the radar of the world? I don't get it. Um, but anyway, you get the whole Kate Upton reference, or is that just too darn vague? It might be a little vague. Um, but you, there's a lot of... If you ever travel internationally, you'll be like... Wow, I love air conditioning. When do I get back to go to air conditioning? Or you'll be like, uh, ooh, how cute, a one-lane highway. And you're like, where's where are the cars on the other side? Oh, there's one coming right at you. So you have to look international because that's where the sexy growth is. Um, it's okay to distrust Wall Street, but avoiding markets entirely is going to hurt you in the long run. Wall Street charged individuals outrageous fixed commissions back in the 70s. And then as things got online, you can now invest for free. All you need is cash, a bank account, and you can now invest for free. Or you can do ETFs. Sometimes you get the first 
300 for free. Sometimes it's the first 30 for free. Some companies like TD Ameritrade offer, you know, 100 different ETFs that you can trade for free. So Wall Street used to, I'd say, be rigged. It didn't really want the middle class or the lower class because it was too expensive. You would pay $400 to buy something like ExxonMobil. You'd call up your broker. You'd have $20,000, and you'd say, I'd like, you know, 200 shares of ExxonMobil. And he'd say, okay, well, I'm going to charge $400 for that, and are you good with that? And uh, he'd take you to play golf kind of thing. Uh, long story short, Wall Street now works for you. It's, it's cheap. Let's go to Gil in Southern California. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, Gil. How are you? Hey, listen, this millennial uh, thing has been interesting to me for quite some time. My 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 slant on it is the housing. You know, I'm thinking about buying uh, – I'm, I'm retired. I've talked to you before. I'm 66. You know, I'm in the bond thing. But still, I like, like – companies that you know all seems like all the houses are getting smaller the buildings yep. are getting smaller what, what what's millennials going to do are they going to be renting uh buying and you know i know they're not probably going to get big houses unless they're super rich i'm just wondering what your take is on millennial and housing because that's like one of the basic things that people need is a roof over their head and i'd like to hear what you have to say about that sure and thanks for the call Gil, and thanks for listening all the way down in southern california couple basic thoughts. Millennials don't mind sharing things. And I know quite a few millennials, and they've never lived in a big spacious area. They typically live, one literally sleeps in a closet. One lived in maybe a 400 square foot apartment. You've heard about micro apartments in San Francisco and probably in Southern California as well, that some jail cells are bigger than what people are living in, but they're okay with that until they get a wife and kids. So there's kind of a delayed bigger housing thing going on. Um, and there's some investments. You could invest in REITs. You know, there's always going to be housing issues. Apartment rates aren't going to go away anytime soon, and they're going to continue to raise rates um, until housing costs come down or until more units come available and people start buying. But the average millennial is 25 years old, and the average mil- uh, woman wants to have a kid at 26. That's when her biological clock starts kicking in. So we should start creating more household formations. So the housing market should be supported for the next few years. I don't think the picture is as bleak as media makes it out on millennials. They're not all on the TV show Girls. They're not all living in New York, San Francisco, or L.A. Um, And, yeah, when you start making babies, you start saying, I want a bigger house, single-family house, because that 400-square-foot apartment is great for going out and partying all night long with lords. But... It's not so good for changing diapers. Uh, but they're different. They're different consumers. They're not going to get a vacation home. They're going to get on Airbnb and, and rent someone's vacation home. They don't have to own things. Cars and houses, not for them. I'm kind of over getting told to throw my hands up in the air.
still freaks me out. This is Deuce Bigelow's daughter, Rob Schneider's daughter. What a sexy voice. Like, there's one thing I wish I could... I mean, this is everyone, right? Don't you wish you had the talent to sing? I do. I don't think about it every day, but... I think... If I were to have a superpower, it might be singing. And playing the guitar. I don't have to fly. Don't have to, like, be bulletproof. Don't have to have a ring that could do cool things and move ectoplasm or talk to the dead. Ah, a good singing voice and a guitar would be more than enough for me. Anyway, um, one thing that I like doing is um, thinking. And I put myself in that position often. And I'm always trying to figure out trends. One of the most basic trends that you can know is baby boomers are retiring and they're going to consume more healthcare. Up to 20% of your portfolio can be in healthcare. Now, healthcare could be hospitals, it could be drug companies, it could be biotech companies, it could be companies like CVS that are retail. And you're, you go into a CVS, and does, isn't it kind of confusing when you go into a CVS? There's a lot of crap there. And you're like, who's going to buy this gel pack that you know sits on the bridge of your nose in case your, t- your reading glass is way too much? And you're like, no one's ever going to buy this. And you're like, but they're in the, the drug business. They pimp drugs. They basically have you go fill your prescriptions in there. And when you're there, you're like, ooh, look, this gel thing. And it's got 100% markup. Um, there's nothing. Anyway, um, so anyway, healthcare is really important. And people are going to be going, especially with Obamacare, people are going to be going to the doctor more and more and more and more. Um, so you have to invest in that. People are going to own homes. The... the idea that we're not going to own homes is silly. We'll drift from 62% ownership to maybe 70% ownership and back and forth and back and forth. And sometimes those cycles will last 10 years. Sometimes those cycles back and forth will last 20. And you'll go, oh, it's a seller's market. I can't believe it's been a, a seller's market for so long. But when it's a buyer's market, it may not last long. But it is a cycle. So Take a look at things that look like trends to you. I personally think like one trend to me that just looks weird is sports. I think there's too many sports out there, and they're too expensive at this point in time. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? I look at San Francisco's new stadium, and, you know, for a couple friends of mine, they wanted to go to the Oregon game last year when they played Cal, and I was like, I'm in. Um, I didn't realize how expensive it was going to be. Okay seats were 250 bucks. Like, that's not okay. This is college sports. Like, it shouldn't be that much. Um, I look at what the, they did to the uh, 49er fans, and I think there's a lawsuit there where they go from a great team and a new stadium, and they, they hit you on the personal seat license. Like, I think the trend of sports and paying athletes that much has to stop at some point, Right. I think Giancarlo Stanton got like a, almost a $300 million deal for playing baseball. Um, try taking your kids to a, a baseball game. Um, it's just not affordable for most families. And yet, again, I go. It's affordable for me. I've got a good living. I look at people there. I'm like, this guy drives a cement truck. How is he here? And I, I don't get it. Um, anyway, one of the trends that I'm looking at 
and I'll, I'll drop the whole sports thing, is tied towards law of accelerating returns. Basically, it states that fundamental measures of information technology follow predictable and exponential trajectories. You've all heard of uh, the law tied towards semiconductors. We, technology generally gets smaller, cheaper, faster. But Moore's law, named after Intel's co-founder Gordon Moore, predicted the number of transistors incorporated in a single semiconductor chip would approximately double every 24 months. Um, Moore's law held true. And that came from 1965 um, through 2012. Um, but there's another area that, you know, now at the point, it turns exponential. It's not linear. You know, one step, two steps, three steps, four steps, five steps, six steps, 60. No, it goes like 2, 4, 8, 16, 32. There was a, a, a singularity is near. Um, the guy who invented chess did it at the emperor of China's, like, he, he loved games, so he invented chess for him. And the emperor said, you can have anything you want. And the guy goes, okay, there's 64 squares on a chessboard. For the first square, give me one grain of rice and then double it. And the emperor said, sure, sounds like a great idea. What a great deal for me. I could afford rice. So at 10 grains of rice per square, it requires, you know, not much. But then 10 becomes 20, 20 becomes 40, 40. And ultimately, by the end, you're talking about millions and millions and millions. You're talking about 18 million trillion grains of rice, which 63 doublings will do. You get the idea. The emperor, in some stories, killed the guy. In some stories, the emperor went broke. Um, you know, a spoonful of rice turns into a bowl of rice, turns into a barrel of rice, turns into one of the largest fields of rice, and the emperor gets pissed off and you probably will die. But artificial intelligence is doing the same thing right now because of computing power. It's exponential. Uh, and the consequences of that could be widely debated. The law of accelerated turns, I think, is good. I think we're going to see a lot of cool breakthroughs, so I think you still want to be involved. Anyhow, and anyway, I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial money, investing, and more. I always have seminars coming up. You can find out more about what I talk about and invest in at these seminars at robblack.com. That's robblack.com. Take care. Have a good day. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision.